missions, but we'll see that meted out in these last verses, beginning of verse 44 down through 52. And I do wish uh, you all a happy anniversary as we, we have hit 133 years, not by uh, our greatness, but by the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ and his word is powerful to not only begin a work, um, but to sustain a work as we've looked at the sustaining one last week. And also to finish a work that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And thanks be to God that we we not only are able to have hope and joy in what he has done and what he's doing, but we also know and we have uh, our future as bright as the promises of God as uh, captured in that statement by William Carey. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Expect little and receive little. And so may God give us always year by year that he grants us an expectancy of the promises of God fulfilled year by year and sustaining us and ultimately promising that he will open more eyes each year to see the light of the gospel, the glory of God in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how the the world gets filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is through the proclaiming of the gospel of Jesus. And he is pleased by his spirit to bring men, women, boys and girls to faith. And it's not an if, it's a certainty because he has promised to do these things. And we can be certain and hopeful always about the future, no matter what's going on in any given day. So I begin here with that celebratory spirit as we read these texts of what God did then and what he's done in planting this church and sustaining it and what he will do years to come. Now in verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge for yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading through the whole region. But the Jews incited devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now may God bless the reading and preaching of his holy word. Amen. We, we look now again to the subject of reformed evangelism. And of course, that's not a term that would be used here in the Bible, but it is the thing it is that we're seeing. What do we mean by reformed evangelism? Well, perhaps we might begin by identifying what reformed evangelism isn't. What is its opposite? What is the contrast to reformed evangelism? And I would have you to learn that uh, the opposite of reformed evangelism is a man-centered evangelism. It's a man-dependent evangelism. 
It's a dependence upon man to determine how many people will come to Christ and who will come to Christ. It's a dependence on man's intellect and man's power and and man's ability and not on God's power and God's ability and God's wisdom. But you know in the Bible, if you've read just a little bit of it, that we're not to boast in human wisdom or human power or human anything. But we're to boast that we know Him. And that it is by the Spirit of God that all that is truly spiritual will be accomplished in this world that's of any worth. And therefore, it's very plain. It's, uh, it's not just the Reformed evangelism, it's the right evangelism. Because there is a work of evangelism that takes place that is as filthy rags. It's based on man's righteousness. It's based on man's willpower. It puts everything on man's shoulders. Reformed evangelism says it's on God's shoulders. And we participate in bringing the gospel at his command to this world. We're commanded to be going and sharing the gospel, beginning in our homes, evangelizing our children, evangelizing those in whom come to the church and where opportunity and where the spirit leads to share the gospel wherever we are. Evangel is the gospel. So when we say evangelism and we disconnect it from the gospel, we don't have real, true, reformed evangelism. You don't need a program. In fact, a program instigates already that there's a problem in understanding what evangelism is. And I'll put my cards on the table that I believe evangelism, based on this text and many others, that evangelism is the church proclaiming the word of God to the world. That means right here what we're doing is evangelism. And I believe that as well, because when it says the call to the preacher is to preach the word to the one who judges the living and the dead in his presence, you will stand for this. And it says, do the work of an evangelist. So evangelism is tied directly to the pulpit in proclaiming the word of God. The abuse of that, of course, would be to turn the pulpit merely into a gospel preaching that is just for the lost. When the fact of the matter is the gospel is for the people of God everywhere and those who will be his people everywhere. You see, the proclaiming of the gospel does not change. The same gospel that saves, we have already learned, is the gospel that sustains us. And the same gospel that sustains us guarantees that he will perfect us. And so it is those whom he predestined, follow the track in Romans 8, he also glorified. That's the way God looks at it. It is a finished work. In the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That's how much God is in control of bringing the nations to himself. A low view of God is going to be a low view of evangelism and a low view of the kingdom. A high view of God and a high view of his word and a humble view of man. is going to produce the greatest hope among the people of God in the midst of all generations and all times. We don't go forward 
by mere nostalgia. We go forward by trusting in the fact that where God had done a work in the past and where he's continuing to do a work, he will only brighten that work going into the future. And these men were reformed evangelists. Many of the things like this that we see coming up against them, the obstacles, for example, the jealousy of the Jews who saw the crowds, and it says they were filled with jealousy. They weren't filled with the Spirit of God, as we see what is common in the book of Acts. We see they're filled with a jealousy. They began to contradict what was spoken by Paul and reviling him. And so they were up against these men. And you would think if these men had trusted in their own doing and their own abilities and their own evangelism, they would have just been blown away at the sound of a fly. But no, we see them pressing forward. We see in the midst as well that by the end of this, the Jews even go so far as to incite not not the peasants, not the the, unru- the non-ruling class, none of that. No, they go to incite the ones that are in power, the ones that are in control. Why would they do that? Because they know how to create fear in the midst of people and the populace and to create a stir. And so they get the leading, the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. And they stir up a persecution against Paul and Barnabas. That's the best they can do. And does that stop them? No, it doesn't stop them. Why? Because if it was man-centered evangelism, it would stop the moment that there's basically just an insect that flew past them that scared them. Or they would say there's a lion out there and so we don't go out there to do the work. When one has reformed evangelism, they grow bolder in the midst of the pressures and in the midst of the persecutions. In fact, they see it as Paul saw it. There is a great door open to me and just as excited, he says, and many adversaries. You see, the fact of adversaries in the world means, just like Joshua and Caleb when they looked out at the land, it was the opportunity to bring the dominion of Christ to bear upon the enemies of God. God even makes the enemies of God's people his friends. He changes hearts. He takes those that were once persecutors, if any... Example would be, above all others, it would be the Apostle Paul who was persecuting the church of God and he was against the church of God, responsible for suffering being inflicted upon men and women and children. We're always reminded that Paul, because of him, there were wives that were widowed. There were husbands whose wives were taken away. There were children that were orphaned. No one was more against the thing that became known as Christianity than the Apostle Paul. But there it was on the road to Damascus that God, even the Lord Jesus Christ, confronted him, changed him, brought him to a blindness and gave him then his sight back so that he can now see, not merely physically, but so that he would see the light of the gospel, the glory of God, the face of Christ And he would be the example to all nations everywhere throughout all time of what God will do for the nations. 
You know, you see, Paul did not come to this revelation on his own. It was a revelation from God. And neither do you come to it on your own. You didn't all of a sudden have the intellect or the wisdom. You didn't have the power to do it. You were dead in your sins. You didn't have anything to bring to God. In fact, if you have a Christianity that teaches otherwise, you don't have Christianity. The problem today for you is not an issue of living the Christian life. The problem today for you would be getting the Christian life. Because life that is true life comes from Jesus Christ and the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And in spite of many man-made evangelism efforts, of course, the gospel gets preached. But let it be known, it isn't because of man that you have all of a sudden come to love this Lord and believe in Him. It's only because of God that sinners, dead in their sins, are made alive to Jesus Christ. So there's a vast difference between this thing called Reformed evangelism and what is often put out there as evangelism. You know, it's a restful thing for me. I think the first time I had just a confirmation of it, I was reading a book called Puritan Evangelism where Joe Beakey set forth the case that the Puritans viewed the church as the only plan to save the world. You see, the church is so identified with Christ that it's the gathering of the church. A lot of people say, well, we need to go out in the streets and, and uh, yell enough for people to believe. And we have so-called reformed evangelists. They're not reformed in any sense. Because they're still trusting in the power of man to do only what God can do. The fact is, God is glorified in the weakness of men depending on Christ. Following his marching orders. And there's certainly a time to go proclaim. I've done my fair share when I entered into ministry. And I went to the streets. Only because it was around the time, I believe it was the Columbine shooting. It had a burden. Because the areas I used to walk in. And the people I used to see. I saw the lostness. And God, God in that instance led me to go. Into a place. And to witness to a people. And we did it peacefully. Most of the time we were praying. We were doing it in conversation. But God blessed that, that part of ministry. We saw many people learn about the Lord. And many people interested in what God was doing. Many people seek prayer. It wasn't perfect, but it was an effort. And sometimes God does that. But the normative way in which we see Scripture showing us that God evangelizes the world is through the pulpits of America's churches. That's why it's so vital that the pulpit be pure, that the pulpit be led by the Word, that the pulpit be led by men who have been called of God and men that are truly called of the Lord. That they receive this call and this commission from the Lord by His Holy Spirit. It is not merely that men desire To go into the ministry. It's not that men simply know a bunch of things. Knowledge puffs up. It can be the greatest danger. To be in this pulpit. And to be exposed to the amount of knowledge you're allowed to be exposed to. And to read the amount of things you're allowed to read. 
that you get to bathe yourself in and to think that that makes one spiritual. No, no, Paul would say, watch yourself, Timothy, and your ministry. Seems to me that at least half the battle is that the pulpit needs to be manned by men that are pursuing holiness in the fear of the Lord. That much of ministry is not simply learning the books, but it's learning the Lord. It's learning yourself enough to know how weak you are and how needy you are and how much of a sheep you are before you ever can be a shepherd. There needs to be really a revitalization, a revival of understanding what the ministry is about. The ministry is not about a man who simply knows a bunch of things. If the ministry is anything, it's about one who knows the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been called by the Lord with some certainty so that he may proclaim the gospel message with some authority. And it might be seen that the power was not of that man, but of the Lord. And so it was. I mean, it's pretty basic ABC nature. When I first walked into a church and sat in a pew, I wasn't sitting there saying, well, how great this man is who's preaching to me. No, what I was hearing from him made me say how great this God is who's used a man like that to proclaim the gospel to me. I was amazed at how God knew me, how God knew my inner workings and my thoughts. And he would pierce me as if he was in my home through the week and he knew how I lived and he knew the thoughts I had. I knew no mere man could figure that out in a given week. I knew no no mere man could look like eyes of fire into my soul. I knew there was something more to this than simply human knowledge or human wisdom or human power. I knew that no mere man could save me. Not by power, not by might, not by wisdom, by my spirit, says the Lord. That's how sinners are saved. There's a vast difference of confidence in Christ. Not confidence in your ability to preach or your eloquence or your knowledge or your books or your degrees. Or even in your church or even in in your past accolades. None of that. The reason sinners are saved according to reformed evangelism is because God the Holy Spirit changes sinners. And God the Son has promised to change people. And God does that in our life and he'll do it all the way to the end increasingly. And I believe that gives us some idea, such a vast contrast. It can sometimes not be so much taught as it is caught. You can tell the difference between one who sees it is the glory of the Lord who's doing this versus one who simply sees that it is man who's doing it. And the vast difference is, is that if you think it is man who's doing it, then what do you do? Ask yourself the question, what kind of preaching will you get if If the preacher thinks that man is the one who's controlling this thing. Well, you'll get the same thing that fathers will get when they begin to look at their children and say, well, you know. What are you thinking? Why are you acting that way? You need to get this in order and this in order and this in order. And it's all based on what you think the human being can do before. you. It's without compassion. It's without gentleness. It's it's without any type of of mercy. It has no pity. 
But when, when the preaching comes from someone, father, mother, sister, or brother, who understands that man can't so much as decide for God as he can do a single thing in life without God, there is a sense in which we know man dead in his sins needs God. And when you understand that about someone, you know that, that you have no ability to go in their heart. I mean, you would do it if you, if you could, right? You would just open it up and you would, you would go in there and you'd figure out a way to do some type of heart surgery on it. And you would try to figure out how to fix everything in there. In fact, we have an inclination to do that, don't we? That's what makes the opposite of Reformed evangelism so dangerous is that our flesh often runs that way. We're all quite guilty of it. We begin to focus on man and not on the Lord. And we begin to basically try to scold people or nag people into the kingdom of God. There's no dependence on God for that. Preachers in the majority of preaching classes that I that I've seen have been completely set up in order to produce three points and a poem and even a leg split sometimes in order to get people to do whatever the pastor wants. It's taught that way. It's taught that you must preach to get this result. So you start with the result you want, the result the preacher wants. He wants growth. Then he shapes the sermon, not he shapes the text. He shapes whatever to get to that point. And you know what? They're quite successful in that. It's a business model. And we've seen what a business model's got us in this world. Looking at the languishing nature of the churches out there and the languishing nature of the people. Why do so many people need counseling today? Why are so many people going to secular psychologists today? Why are they going to the psychiatrist? Why are so many people on medication today? Why are so many predominantly women today hooked on medication of psychotic drugs in order to fix their problems? Why is that? Is it because there's actually some real issues that are being dealt with? Or is it just an experiment upon these people? And is it an alternative to say you don't need God? What you need is this pill and you need these things and you need this physician. There was a time in Puritan life where the preaching of the word and the preacher and the pastor was the doctor of the soul. And secular society can't solve that. Um, A pill can't solve that. A so-called physician has no place there. Medicine, in that respect, needs to be restored back to the pulpit because that's where people's souls are saved and sustained and perfected. That's where guilt is taken off by the cross of Jesus Christ, not through a pill, not through secular psychology. And I speak as one who studied it. And I've heard of all that. By the way, as I studied it, the one thing I realized I was lost at the time is everybody in it was crazy. I thought, you got to stay away from these people. I mean, I had professors and I had, I had people. I remember how they were just nuts. And they're teaching me how to fix nuts. And I said, oh my. And I was lost. I knew enough of this. I knew this wasn't a certain solution. It was all guesswork. 
It was all trial and error. It was all based on the best, quote, science of the day. Well, why did you need a, a new casebook and another casebook? Not because there were more different cases. It's the same cases, the same problems in humanity all the time. The reason that casebook had to be edited after one, after another, after another is because people's opinions changed, not because the science changed. In my day, it was Prozac. And they admit it to the overprescription of it. And the majority of the cases, get this, told to me by the professors and experts and scholars in the field who were training me to go in and help people, admittedly said most of those diagnoses had to deal really with a caffeine issue rather than a real psychological issue. They were overdosing, overprescribing, I mean, Prozac and other drugs when they could have fixed it by taking their client out for a cup of coffee. Truth. That was the problem. And I was lost and I knew that could not be a sure science. We weren't really going to help people that way. And the people teaching this didn't have help. They themselves were depressed. They themselves had problems. They couldn't be trusted. If you can't trust a skinny chef, you surely can't trust a crazy psychiatrist. Well, why in the world will we trust churches and pastors and people out there that are preaching some nonsense about how man's the one and his will and his might and his power and all that he does is actually going to make the difference in this world? Why are we going to trust people whose lives they themselves can't get together? They're a false advertisement to the gospel. They have to hire more staff in order to counsel more people, to make people more dependent upon them, not on God. A healthy church will be one in which requires less and less maintenance of its people the more they grow in Jesus. And when the new babies come into the church that are brand new believers in the Lord, it is the church that becomes one by one in multitudes Biblical counselors to those little ones that we are charged with making sure we do not cause them to stumble. By the way, that's the little ones that Jesus is speaking of. He caused one of these little ones to stumble. It would be better to have one of those big old stone wheels over top of you and thrown to the bottom of the sea. You see how serious it is to do ministry. The fact it is we're responsible for souls. It causes us great, great anxiety. Think about the responsibility that we have to take. But then it also gives us great relief that so long as we simply humbly walk with our God and depend on him and ask him, what do we do next? How do I help this person? How do I care for this soul? And we and we realize and we confess again and again and again, it is not us. It is the Lord who shepherds his people. And thanks be to God that he chooses to use us as weak earthen vessels to somehow be a blessing to other sinners who need the same grace that we need every day. 
Huge difference, folks, between reformed type preaching and evangelism and the alternative. Well, you say, well, <clears throat> you see here the problem coming up against, but how do you see reformed evangelism? Well, when you speak of the Reformation, you realize it's rediscovered the doctrines of the gospel and the doctrines of grace. And at heart of that, the rediscovery has to do with what we see pointed out in the first verse that we read, verse 44, meaning there's a means. It is the word of the Lord, not the word of men. The word of the Lord, not the word of men. We have authority because we come with an open Bible and we don't simply take and we say, well, here's what the Bible says. And then we make it about ourselves. It's not about us. The word of the Lord says these things. And the whole city, it says, gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And it says it was necessary that the word of the Lord be spoken first to you, speaking to the Jews of the time. And notice, since they thrust aside the word of the Lord, it wasn't that God judged them here. God will judge them. But they at this time had judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. Man is all the time judging himself unworthy of eternal life when he rejects the word of the Lord. And it, it's not just rejecting the word of the Lord saying, well, I, I don't really want to hear the gospel. No, we reject the word of the Lord when we pick up Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. Or we pick up a Joyce Meyer book and say, well, we're trusting in this. Or we pick up a how-to book by some heretic. We're judging ourselves unworthy of eternal life. To go to that and not Christ. We're picking up substitutes. Weak, worthless substitutes to feed us. When we go to the secular psychiatrist to get only what Jesus will bring through faith and repentance, we are judging ourselves unworthy of eternal life. Jesus is not a piecemeal where you just fit him in to all of your how-to programs among your yoga lessons. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And the issue is, do you trust in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ? Do you believe He alone is the one that can solve the problem of your soul? Make your mind well. And He's the reason why you have any health physically at all. Do you find Him alone to be the Savior of the world? Or do you find him as this part of the prescription? Because if you make him just simply into one among many, you have judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Eternal life comes through exclusivity to Jesus Christ. He will not give his glory to another. He will not let one who says, I trust in this and that go to heaven. It's the one who trusts in him that is delivered from hell and goes to heaven. And he has heaven on earth as he grows increasing knowledge of him. 
So there's the means of the word of God that's in the, the tool belt of the reformed evangelist. The reformed evangelist has nothing but the word of God to bring to people and the exclusivity of Christ. And note too, this is coupled with verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. There it is again, the means. But here's what it has to be coupled with. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. There are some verses that make it crystal clear what is called the pactum salutis, that covenant of redemption. It is the covenant of salvation made before time. The lamb slain before the foundation of the world. How do you have a lamb slain before the foundation of the world? It's saying that it was determined already. One would come and die for a people whom were determined already. Would be birthed into this world. Would live in this world every day. Every hair on their head numbered. Everything. Every mistake they would make. Every sin that they would commit. And he would save them while they were ungodly. By the blood of the Lamb. And bring them to glory. There are some verses that make it crystal clear. The pre Destinating power of God. Now, a lot of people at the heart of this reformed evangelism, they get to the predestination. They say, well, why do you go out and evangelize? Because God has ordained the word to be proclaimed for sinners to be saved. Sinners will not be saved without the word of God. Normatively, he can save them. He could save them in the womb. He can save them before they know their right hand from their left. And I believe he does. But normally. We see the word is brought. To the sinner. Whom he is ordained to eternal life. He is appointed. So you, you have you have you cannot get around the doctrine of predestination. There's a fight between who wants to be the predestinator, but you can't get around Predestination. It's a dirty word for some people, but it's a glorious word for the church. You see, it's either going to be man who predestinates or God who predestinates. It's going to be the state who acts as the predestinator or it's going to be God who is the predestinator. The state will endeavor to control all things, including salvation, if it would have it, as the predestinator of man, the one who will be in control of what one thinks and what one does. You see, the offense should be, we should be offended that man would set himself up as a predestinator. When God alone is the true predestinator of man. He's the one who created us. He made us in his image. It doesn't make us Christians. It makes us image bearers. We are human beings. Some people aren't acting like human beings. And it's because they're losing their humanity by taking on the creature rather than the creator. And all we once were. 
acting and roaming about with our lusts like animals rather than being like God. God predestinates a people to believe. It says, as a many were appointed to eternal life, believed. So he appointed them to life. Not, not necessarily to faith. He appoints them to life. And with the appointing them to life, he gives them faith. So you say, well, I have faith. Well, good. You have faith because God gives it faith if it's faith at all. So when someone comes to Christ and we lead them to Christ and preaching the gospel to them and they come to believe in the Lord, we can say of all men who have faith that that faith is a gift of God to be boasted in as God having given it. So this is this is the first matter. It is so we don't become hyper Calvinists. Hyper Calvinists. Do not believe in the free offer of salvation. They believe that we don't have to do anything. And if God wants to save people, he'll just do it the way he wants. No, God has obligated himself to do it by the word proclaimed. Therefore, the need for reformed evangelism, the need for the plea. Brothers, it says it throughout over and over again. He addresses them as we have seen throughout this sermon. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, verse 26, and those among you who fear God. And you'll see that kind of phrase coming up again and again and again, calling people, believe in the Lord, trust in Christ, turn from your sins. And a hyper Calvinist says, no, we don't need to do any of that. No, the Bible saying the word of God is to be proclaimed to the nations. Well, why will the nations believe? It's not merely why or I mean, how will they believe? It's why. Why would they believe? Only because as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Because without that, we would condemn ourselves. We would pick up another savior. We would walk through some type of maze and think we're spiritual. We'll go through different methods of type of spirituality, whether it be Eastern or Western. It doesn't matter. We will try to find many ways to God. But we will refuse to accept the one way in exclusivity. Except there be someone who proclaims Christ alone saves sinners. And the vital message for the church to proclaim is a reformed gospel, a gospel that says you must come through Christ alone. You must come By the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and it will be according to the Bible alone, for the glory of God alone. It needs to be a reformed message. And that's what we mean by reformed. We mean that man is totally depraved. Man is elected who comes to him uh, before the foundation of the world. Christ had come and died for a people whom he knew in eternity past. And he will redeem every one of them and not lose any of them. He sends his spirit to irresistibly draw his people to himself in time. And they will not merely come to him, but they will remain in him and in his love and in his word to the very end. That's what we mean when we say a reformed message and a reformed evangelism. And we must not give people anything less. 
And we must not pervert it to a way where there is no need for the means of the word. Nor must we go to the other end and turn it into something that glorifies man's works and man's wisdom and man's power. These are the two great errors. Well, very well. The reformed evangelism makes it clear the power belongs to God and not to us. But then we also see, we see throughout this text, that there's this inability to stop and take away the joy of his people. This is what Jesus said, I give you a joy, not as the world gives, I give to you. And it's a joy that it can't be taken away. You see, when you believed in Christ, you were given hope, And joy and peace that could never be taken from you. You have been given something in which, in fact, it's the adversities that bring alive the deep set joy in your heart. Because the one thing you know when you have been converted by God is that he loves you. You know that he loves you because he gave his son for you. And there's such a demonstration of that love, such a gravity of it, that on the cross of Jesus Christ, we see bore our wounds for us. That our soul's needs and our body's needs are wrapped up in the one who came and died physically for us and suffered in anguish and soul. And there's no question in our lives. There may be question at times of how much we love God, but there is never a question in our hearts and our lives about how much he loves us because of the cross. Because of what Jesus did. Well, how can you ever get there if you have a gospel that's centered upon man and what he does? Tell me that. We know the answer. You don't get there. You get to a point where men say, here's what I've done, Lord. Here's what I've done. Here's what I've done. And it creates an opportunity for bitterness. It creates an atmosphere without mercy, an atmosphere of judgment. Perhaps it is that if your homes are full of judgment, if a church is full of judgment, if there's this constant criticism there in your own hearts, if your own heart is full of that, You may very well, and we could say with some certainty, you are. Somehow tainted with some idea of a a gospel that depends on you and a gospel, a gospel that depends on men. And so therefore you're going at people without compassion. You have no mercy for them. You think that if they just could think well enough and if they if they could just think like you think. And if they could just get it like you get it, they would be all right. But when you understand they are helpless, they are dead in their sins. They have no capacity to think differently. They have no ability to make their lives different. And then what is it yielding your hearts? It is compassion and pity and mercy and tears and prayer because you can only cry out, God, save them, change their hearts. Can't change them. But you're not hopeless in it. You know, God will change them. 
whom he has sent his son to die for. That doesn't mean every human being gets saved, but it does mean that a great many do. Because our God's heart is a heart full of compassion. His steadfast love is new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. When Jeremiah walked out of the rubble of Jerusalem and saw what man had accomplished there and the devastation of it, he could only say it was because of our sin. But as Christian believers, we don't go and look out at Jerusalem and say it. We run to the cross and we say, how could one be treated so badly? How could a body be bruised so violently? How could he be treated with such respite against his dignity? How could he be shamed and stripped naked and gambled below his feet in the midst of his great suffering? How could such one who was so glorious be taken so much for granted? How can it be possible? It is because of our sin. Sin that was placed on that man. All of the sin of those who will believe in Christ. All of those whom God predestinated to life. Who would be given the gift of faith. And so it is when we look at that helpless man in our family or woman, when we look at people in our church that seem helpless to do anything but righteousness, when we look out at our world and even our rulers and leaders and see how impotent they are to save, when we look out at our psychologists and psychiatrists and physicians and doctors and we see how ill-fit they are to actually help people, we do not despair because we know there is one who is a great physician, who heals both body and soul, who gives us all that we need in his son, Jesus Christ, in this life and in the life to come. Let's stand together. Father, thank you that you have not left us with an unfit Savior or an insufficient one. But if we have Christ, we shall not want. He is our shepherd, our leader, and even our friend. We know we don't share the gospel completely how we ought. But we do believe you've given us the ability to know what this gospel is. Help us to proclaim it even more faithfully, day by day, year by year. Help our souls to be nourished today from your words, your truth, your doctrine, of the exclusivity of Jesus, the predestination of uh, the Bible teaches us. Help us to not settle for anything that would leave our souls famished. But help us to not. Not merely proclaim Christ Lord to a world before we say Christ, your Lord over our lives right now.
You're Lord over this church. You're Lord over this community. And when we go, we go with authenticity to the world, saying what we believe we now present to you. Father, help us with boldness and confidence, no matter the adversities, see and know and love and rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless your people, we pray. Bless each one that is gathered today. Make some that are not your people, your people. Cause there to be the regenerating grace of your son in their lives. Lord, begin in my heart. Begin in this pulpit and make me to be more like your son. Shape me, my words, my attitudes, my actions. Henceforth, to be more equipped and more in line with your Holy Spirit. May be full of joy, but not just joy, but love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Oh, God, fill us with your spirit. Let us not be drunk with the wine of this world, but let us be fed and nourished by that cup in which represents the blood of our Lord today. And may we be confident in Christ, whose body was given for us, broken for us. As we take of the elements that show to us our Lord's great love. May all who believe in you, who look outside themselves to you as we come today to this table. May we find our hearts are glad because of Christ and we are confident in Christ and we're in union with him. Oh, God, do a work even through this table. Strengthen us. In Jesus name. Amen. May you come.